as we continue to worship our awesome God, as we gather around his word, let us just uh, open our Bibles up to Zechariah chapter uh, 12 as we continue in our sermon series looking at uh, the minor prophets and seeing how God has revere, revealed himself in his word. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Zechariah chapter 12. If you're watching online, uh, there is a Bible app that's right there available for you at live.nolwood.ca as I preach through uh, Zechariah chapter 12 using the ESV version. But as we do that, let us just open up our time in prayer. Father God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the chance that we have to just come and to continue to worship you through the preaching of your word. And dear Lord, I do pray that indeed you are glorified. And God, I cannot do this on my own. So Lord, by your spirit, will you use this sermon to glorify your name, to bring joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. In chapter 12, it prophesies the future of what is about to happen. It is the offensive by the nations against the city of Jerusalem. And even in the account that we see in chapter 12, we will see that uh, Judah is also part of, this, uh, of the nations that have gathered against Jerusalem. But we see that yet the Lord promises to save and to strengthen his people in verses 1 to 9. But in the aftermath of this battle, of this siege, the people will mourn and grieve the one whom they have pierced in the last part of this, ver of this chapter in verses 10 to 14. And then we see that God will bring cleansing. In this section, it reveals that God's kingdom will not come without its turmoil. It will come at a great cost to its people and their king. But the final outcome is glorious. So if you have your Bibles with you, we'll be reading from Zechariah chapter 12. And the word of the Lord says this. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding people. The siege of Jerusalem will be also against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it up will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. When I strike every horse, the people will with the sorry, and when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength, strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. In verse 6. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. 
On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall, mo- they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Rimon on the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives for themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves and on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of david and the inhabitants of jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness this is the word of the lord In verses 1 to 9 of chapter 12, we see that there's a siege and the God who will save. In verse 1, we see, thus declares the Lord, another reminder of this is is the word of the Lord that's coming out. But this is the God, as as verse 1 says, who who stretches out the heavens and and founded the earth. We need to have the right perspective. And, And Zechariah starts his oracle by giving his people the right perspective. This is who our God is. He is the God who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth. The expanse of the heavens causes us to be in awe and wonder of who our God is. See, in the midst of turmoil, we need to be sure we have the right perspective. Calvin put it this way, John Calvin. He said, however stupid we might be, we cannot look on the sun and the moon and stars and on the whole bright expanse above without some or even strong emotion of fear and reverence. Think about who our God is. Dwell on this description that we see in verse 1. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit to man within him. Think about this. Because as we read the prophecy that is about to happen in that day further on, this is the God who will fulfill that prophecy. God would not forsake the small and the weak and the feeble remnant of his people. No matter how weak God's people were compared to the other nations around them, the power of God alone will be all that is needed to defend them. How often do you and I feel like we've been abandoned by our God? 
that the circumstances we find ourselves in are impossible and we can't keep on going and, and the battle is too big, too large. I can't live the way that God has called me to do. I can't do the things that God has called me to do. And God comes right off the bat in verse 12 and reminds us of the very God who he is. He is the God who created everything. He is the God who formed the spirit of man within him. And if you're listening to this, you obviously are alive. God has put your, a spirit within you. And if he is the God who, who created not only the stars and the heavens, but created you and the ability to, to move your hand and, and to speak, how much more can we expect God to do the things that he will do as he said he will in his word? The promises that are being told to the people of God in the midst of, har- of their hardships. This is the God who will do with his people and their enemies what we will see in the following verses. As you see in verse 2, it says, I am to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. And when we picture that in our mind, think of a drunk person who's, who's full of, of alcohol and is trying to walk and they're enamored and, and having a hard time to walk already. But maybe they try to walk over a, a curb or a stone and they stumble and they fall. That's what Jerusalem will be to their people. They will be no longer, will God's wrath be, no longer will God's wrath be being poured out on them, but God will use them as an instrument for his wrath on the nations. As he continues on, it would also be against Judah. You know, we re- you read that right. You mean Judah is part of the nations that are leading a siege against Jerusalem? And the answer is yes. The situation is dire. Even Judah, part of God's people, is there. And when we look at passages like in Psalm 2, Jerusalem is the representation of God and his anointed person. So even the people of God are against God and his anointed And in verse 3 and 4, we see on that day, this is Armageddon. This is the last great battle. This is the battle that we see in Revelation 16, 16. This is the end. This is the day that the God comes in power to set the affairs of the earth right. He's coming in both in judgment and in salvation. But Jerusalem will be a heavy stone. As the verses continue on, even in the impossible, overwhelming situation, they will be immovable. And God will cause panic and madness and blindness. These are the curses that come through in Deuteronomy 28 and 28, where God promised that anybody who is against God's people, they will be cursed. God will protect. But then he says, For the sake of the house of Judah, God will keep his eyes open. He will care for his people. See, God uses his people to overthrow those who are rising up against him. In verses 1 to 4 of this first section of of seeing a siege and God working with his people, it talks about how God works outside of the walls. But as we walk into verses 5 to 9, God begins to work within the walls and those people that are within them. 
As we see in verses 5 to 6, the clans of Judah shall say, they will see all the things that God is doing in the midst of this siege, and Judah will have a change of heart. When they see God defending Jerusalem and protecting them in the midst of what is happening in verse 4, they will have that change of heart. They turn on against the people that were involved in the siege, and they themselves begin to consume them. See, when we look at the cross and Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we see how the house of Judah was aligned with the nations around them to pierce the very Savior. But then there's this part here that the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. This is something, you know, that I long to see in you. This is something that I, I, I pray for every day, that we as a church would be as well, that we know would, that we would be strengthened by the very presence of our Lord. Even though we cannot gather together, we are still the church in this city of London, that we would be strengthened in the presence of the Lord. That you will grow in spiritual strength because the Lord Almighty is our God. But as God changes their hearts to to a heart of repentance, the outcome of all of this is that Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place. Meaning it will be saved and will occupy its proper place. In verse 7, the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah. God will bring unity and and concord to his people. They were what were separated, will be united again under one people. And they will be like the angel of God. They will be enabled to lead God's people. Judah will once again be able to lead God's people. There's a restoration that is happening. There will be a trust between the leader and the lead, led. And it goes to the point that so much, so much good comes out of this, is that so that the feeblest among them, you see this phrase, sons of God working in his people. And are you weak? I know that this time has shown how weak I am. And I look to a passage like this, and I see that it is God who strengthens. That it is God who strengthens for the task that is ahead. On that day, there will be a supernatural empowering for all of God's people, from the least to the greatest. Even the feeblest among you will be able to do great feats of faith in his name. Like those that we see even in the life of David. The leaders will rise up in the might of God, guiding and inspiring confidence in the church as did the angel of the Lord did with the tribes of Israel. On that day will be an amazingly great day. And verse 9 comes along and it summarizes verses 1 to 8. That day when the nations and the people of Israel gather against Jerusalem was when God's holy servant Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. This was the day of salvation for God's people. 
See, God strengthens his people for victory. For you and for me, who are God's people, this is irrelevant as, as much as it is to us as it was to those people who were first listening to this. Even though the earthly city of Jerusalem is no longer the center of our hope, God no longer dwells in this particular location in the Middle East. Now he dwells by the Spirit in the midst of his people, wherever they gather to worship. These promises that we see here still have importance for you and for me because trials and tribulation are a universal part of our experience. No matter how intense our trials are, however weak, however weak you may feel you are, the Lord is able to strengthen you to stand giving us a, a glory far beyond anything that comes from ourselves. In verses 1 to 9, it shows a God who will come to save his people. But there is an outcome of that saving. As we look to the following verses, this, there's a great victory that's even greater than what we see in the first part. It is a victory and a conquering of our hearts. There is nothing greater than the heart that has true repentance for sin and a turning back to God. As we see in verses in chapter 12, verses 10 to chapter 13, verse 1, mourning in the God who cleanses. In the aftermath of this amazingly great battle, there comes this interesting dialogue of, of mourning. As it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for any for an only child, and we bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. See, I, I, I love this, because God's spirit is being poured out on his people, and as God pours out his spirit on his people, it produces grace and pleas for mercy. These are signs of repentance. See, God is the one who changes his people so that they mourn as one who mourns at the loss of an only child, at the loss of a firstborn child. See, these expressions are talking about a desperate and, 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 a, and a profound anguish and sorrow at the one they have pierced. The firstborn was the heir and the representative of the people's future. As it continues on, we see whom they have pierced. The people did, in fact, stab the Lord metaphorically when they were unfaithful to him. But they actually did it physically, in reality, when they stabbed him on the cross. To whom it is through whom he brings salvation. This is a great prophecy of Jesus. This prophecy lay in waiting for, for years. And the time came when Jesus lived and was rejected like we saw earlier in chapter 11. 
and was handed over to the Romans to be crucified. A Roman soldier that comes and, and pierces the side of Jesus. And, and John 19, 34 says that these things happen to fulfill the scriptures. But the morning that comes out of this, as the people begin to realize what their actions have done, is a great day of mourning, as verse 11 says. See, these verses talk about the death of another Davidic king that would have been fresh in the, in the memory and the thoughts of the people who were listening to this. And as they heard this, they were thinking of Josiah and how he was pierced. And then you get this idea of the mourning, this good, this good and righteous king being killed on the battlefield and the mourning that came out of it. It's an amazing sense of mourning. You know, I, in, in the back of my mind, there's two times as a pastor where funerals are hard, but they are often harder. You know, we've had to, uh, in my pastoral experience, I've, I've buried two children. You know, I, I can think of three times in my pastoral experience where, where, where you're, comforting, uh, you're comforting the mother of, of, of a child who passed away. Imagine the, the grieving that, that comes out of that. And, and that is what the people are seeing here. And as I reflect upon this passage, I think of all of those times where I've seen uh, buried caskets that are just too small. And you see the mourning that is coming through in those people. And, and that is the type of mourning that we see here. Do not read over this quickly. See, this is the outcome of godly repentance. This is godly grief. They are so distraught of what they did by piercing their Savior's side that their repentance is just, they're falling on their face and weeping out to a God who is, they're just weeping. Don't read over this. See, God, by his pouring out of his spirit, produces a godly grief which leads to repentance. And this is exactly what is happening here. I think of also communion as we gather together, and I can't wait till we can gather together. I really look forward to it. We're gonna, when we have communion together, as we gather together as a people of God, we will take time to reflect on how our sins pierced our Savior, how he died for our sins. Such an amazing thing of what God has done for us. And as we see this later on, as it continues on, as this weeping continues on, this isn't just a, a, a weeping that is for a specific type of people or, or a certain group of people. This is for all the people. You know, when we reflect upon our sin and how it pierced our Savior, it should lead us to an immense amount of grief 
But as we reflect upon that, I quickly begin to see how God died in my place. How Jesus was a propitiation for my sin. He, he, he paid the wrath. He absorbed the wrath of God upon himself so that when I come and I, and I, and I repent of my sin and I, and I rest in what Christ has done on the cross for me, I can boldly approach the throne of God. God sees me through Christ's righteousness and not my own dirt. So God, by his pouring out of his spirit, he produces a godly grief as they reflect upon how their sins pierced their Savior. And as they do that, it brings a godly repentance, a turning from sin. See, do you understand that if someone truly understands what they have done to their Savior, how they could, how can they continue to relish in the mess of sin. The greater I understand my sin, the greater I understand what I did to my Lord and my Savior by my sin, the greater I understand what God has saved me from, that gives me a desire to live a life that is holy to him. But this is what comes out here in verses 11. And as we look at verses 10 or 12 to 14, the royal and the priestly families will lead the people of God into repentance and all people have equal responsibility for their sin and equal need to repent. Not one person is left outside of this group of people that need to repent, who mourn. Everyone does. Everyone will be sorry for their sin. Then they will mourn the, that the pierced Christ. Godly sorrow is at the heart of true repentance and it leads us to fully and completely return to God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 to 11 say this, For godly grief, it says, produces a spirit that leads to salvation without regret. You hear that? With, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. For also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Godly sorrow, as one man put it. Godly sorrow is the garden in which all sorts of good fruit are grown. Especially the repentance that leads to salvation. What will become of you? Jesus right now, he, he's speaking to you in words of grace. He's calling for you to look to him, to mourn for your sins that he bore on the cross and find in him salvation for your soul. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And blessed are all you who weep now for you shall laugh. So what, you may ask? And here's the so what. God's people will face turmoil, but God will powerfully act to bring salvation. And really, chapter 13, verse 1, is the so what statement of this all. 
And it says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. This is a picture of a cleansing fountain. It shows this abundance of forgiveness of our sins. Like if this doesn't bring us to, 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 to sing songs of praise and worship, if this doesn't bring us to this realization that there are other people who are, who are destined to hell, that they can know forgiveness. If this doesn't bring us to, to send us out to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, I honestly don't know what will. If this doesn't bring us to godly grief and godly repentance, I don't know what will. This fountain is showing an abundance of, of forgiveness. You think of, of a fountain, you know, as I, as I talk, I think about Ocean's Eleven and that final scene with the, with the classical music and the fountain. You know, abundance of water. The forgiveness that is found in Jesus. Cleansing from sin that comes from Jesus as 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2 say, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. For all those who repent and believe. When I read these verses of this oracle, I'm quickly reminded of that great old hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood, which says this in the first verse. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. When we look at the first books of the, of the, the Old Testament, Water is used for cleansing. A fountain or a spring gives the idea that there is an abundance and ongoing supply of water and anticipates a living water. You know, when we look at Zechariah 14 in a couple of weeks, we will see that it flows from Jerusalem. See, sacrifice in the Bible is normally what is required for purification of sin. Washing is used as an image of repentance and purification from sin. It's an amazing thing. Look at the cleansing that comes. It's an abundance. It's not like a little, little, tiny little thing. It is a fountain. It is abundant forgiveness that is offered through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See what these verses are saying, what the Savior has done for you. Can you feel the weight of these words? Do you sense the wonder of what Jesus has done for you? He has borne your grief, your sorrows, your transgressions, all of your sins, a punishment that was reserved for you. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus has died, and he has died for you. 
The stain of sin that marred your life has now been washed white as snow. As, uh, as chapter 13 verse 1 says. So what do we do with this? We trust. We look forward to that day when we will stand before his throne, repeating the wonder that he died to save our souls. Yes, we will trust him today. We will trust him as we face the turmoil of today and tomorrow, as we face the, the, the backlash of sharing our faith in Jesus Christ and the hope that we have. We will trust in the midst of a pandemic. We will trust him. We will trust and forsake the foolish pursuits that used to consume our lives. We will stop condemning ourselves for past sins. We will relinquish the shame we've harbored for so long. And we will abandon our self-absorbed efforts to make ourselves worthy. Chapter 12 prophesies a future offensive by the nations against the city of Jerusalem. Yet the Lord promises to save and to strengthen his people. In the aftermath of that battle, the people will mourn and grieve the one that they have pierced by their sins. And God will cleanse them like a fountain. Chapter 12 and chapter 13 are closely related. We have seen that God's kingdom will come at a great cost to God's people and to their king. But the final outcome will be glorious. The people will be saved and cleansed from sin. See, God's people will face turmoil. But God will powerfully act to bring salvation. Let us praise and worship the God who has pierced for our transgressions. Father God, we just thank you so much for who you are. Lord, as we look at chapter 12 and a little bit of chapter 13, Lord, I pray that the reality of who you are would seek deep into our hearts, into our minds, that what we read in these verses, in this prophecy, are, are accomplished by the God who, who created the heavens of heavens, who created the soul of man. Lord, you can do anything. You can cleanse what seems uncleanable. Lord, so we praise you for what you have done. May you be glorified. May you be honored. And amen.